Perhaps you've heard someone say something along the lines of, I wish our churches would get back to being like the New Testament church. Maybe you even said that yourself. Many share this sentiment when they see the differences between modern churches and the church in Acts. But it overlooks the fact that the New Testament churches were far from perfect. Case in point, the church at Corinth. Corinth was an important city at the heart of major trade routes in the ancient world. It was known for sexual immorality, religious promiscuity, and moral corruption. And as a result, the church that Paul planted there struggled with allowing the gospel to transform every area of their life. And their problems were vast. Division within the church? Corinth had that problem. Someone sleeping with another man's wife? Corinth had it. People within the church suing each other? Corinth had that. Devoting allegiances to something other than God? Corinth had that too. We quickly get a picture of a New Testament church that is full of broken people, kind of like us. During his ministry in Ephesus, Paul saw fit to address the deep-rooted brokenness of the Corinthian church. It was his prayer that this reminder of God's wisdom would transform these foolish saints into the likeness of Jesus and unify a broken church. So we start this series today, and uh, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our desire is to not just read through this book or to learn some interesting facts about this book, as we like to point out. Um, whenever we start a Bible book, our desire is for the book to go through us, um, that it would transform us, that people would say, hey, what's different about you? Have you been reading 1 Corinthians? Because uh, you're acting a little bit different. I mean, that's really our desire, is it not? I mean, it's, it's weird. So many other things in our lives that really uh, excite our imagination or captivate our attention, people can tell something's going on. Um, I, I start watching a TV show that I absolutely love, and I want everybody else to watch it along with me. And so that's just kind of the way things are. And yet when it comes to Scripture, we don't seem to have that same zeal or that same enthusiasm. And uh, don't want to manufacture it. Don't want to try to fake it or pretend it. Um, but really our desire and our goal is to allow this book to mold and to shape every aspect of our lives um, for God's glory, uh, for others' benefit, and for our deepest joy. So if you have that in readiness, um, what I want to do is I want to just kind of set the stage a little bit. Um, this is a, a letter that was written many, many, many years ago to some broken people by a broken man. And I know a lot of times we don't want to say that about the Apostle Paul after he is the, he is the Apostle Paul. The great Apostle Paul, probably the greatest human who has ever lived, other than Jesus Christ, right? We talk like that, do we not? Like he is this amazing, amazing, amazing individual, contrary to how he describes himself. I mean, I know at times he'll talk about and he'll say it's even crazy for him to brag like this, but the Apostle Paul describes himself as least of all the apostles, the greatest of all sinners, much of Paul's life, I, I think that uh, um, he would wish were different, but yet he has this profound sense that God had a plan and a purpose for his life, and I think one of the greatest things about him was I don't think he thought a lot about who he was. I think he was so overwhelmed by the grace of God and by the call of God upon his own life that his life just kind of melted into God's plan and purpose. Not that he lost any distinctiveness about himself, but he is going to make some very bold statements in this letter that he's really nothing in comparison to who Jesus Christ is. 
But if you were to ask him if he was broken, he would be pretty honest about it. He would talk about his weakness so that Christ might be great. He, he would talk about just visions and dreams that he had seen. Uh, he'd talk about a thorn in his flesh and a difficulty that he went through. And God finally said, okay, Paul, I don't want to talk about this anymore. My grace is sufficient for you. So I don't think Paul saw himself like we did. Actually, in fact, I think Paul would say, Jim, stop it. Okay, I'm done. The city of Corinth. Now, that's a messed up place. It's a city that was established kind of uh, within the, the, the development and the, the birth of this great, Rome, this great Greek empire. But when the Romans got a hold of it, they literally destroyed it completely. And for about 100 years, 50 years before Jesus Christ, but for 100 years before that, the city just laid in ruins. But its position was of too great strategic importance militarily and commercially. And so about 50 years before Jesus Christ was born, the Romans began to rebuild it, and they did. They resettled it with a number of very um, famous and rich and intelligent Roman people. And it was a hodgepodge of people. There was a, a, a strong Jewish community that actually lived there. Uh, the Romans knew how to take the best of all of these different places and put it together and Corinth was a great example of that. Its strategic importance allowed it to be this commercial leading place that would attract just hundreds of thousands of people. By the time that Paul first walks the streets of Corinth, it is likely estimated that there were about 200,000 people that lived there. That's huge for an ancient city. And Paul, a, a broken man, a man with the call of God upon his life, but a man with problems and difficulties and a past, who has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, dared at the prompting and the inspiration and the guidance and the strength of the Holy Spirit to walk into this city and say, things are going to change. I don't think he was thinking that the whole city would just become a Christian church and everything would be radically fixed. Actually, Paul was very um, aware that the gospel would come and it would divide individuals and families, that the gospel would come and that some would accept it, but most wouldn't. The Apostle Paul cannot change the fact that the way of Jesus is narrow and few will find it and most will choose a, a wide path that allows them to keep living their life exactly the way that they want. But for the few that find it, life should radically change, shouldn't it? It did for Paul. He, he was a broken man who, after finding Jesus Christ, became someone radically different. And Paul saw a lot of this transformation take place in the people of Corinth. Paul saw people's lives change, and over a period of about 18 months, Paul spent... Um, some very intentional time in a tent-making ministry, working, working very, very hard to supply his needs and the needs of those that were with him so that they might establish a church. And after 18 months, because you know, after 18 months of becoming a Christian, you should have it all figured out, right? After 18 months, he moves on. And about three years later, uh, years about somewhere between 53 to 55 AD, the Apostle Paul hears news that things aren't going well. Well, that's what he should expect, right? After all, I'm sure he's struggled. Haven't you read Romans? He's had difficulties. Uh, this, this is different. This isn't just difficulties trying to recognize the work of God in his life. These are people that are like severely broken. As the intro went, 
I mean, there was some sin that wasn't just being wrestled with. There was some sin that was being openly accepted. And when Paul hears news of this, he writes a series of letters. We know of most likely four, even though we only have two. Paul believes that his engagement, that more teaching is necessary, that although they have the power of the Holy Spirit, and they don't need Paul's advice, the Holy Spirit has put it on Paul to speak truth to this group of individuals who are probably a lot like you and I, who really did, at some level, believe what Jesus had taught and believed who Jesus was, and just struggled with the, with the radical transformation that should be taking place that just isn't taking place. Isn't that you? Isn't that you? I thought I'd be different. I thought, I thought I'd be more different. I, I thought I would at least have fewer struggles. And the Apostle Paul sees this and he, um, he addresses it with this letter. And so what you and I are going to have the privilege of doing is reading this letter so that we can get a sense of what advice this broken apostle gave to a broken group of people who are struggling with this. They lived in a town and in a time when there was a lot of competing ideas about what it meant to be rich and poor and the rich were taking advantage of the poor and the poor were complaining about the rich. There, 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 was, there were odds um, philosophically and religiously about what it meant to be a person and what it meant to be a citizen and what it meant to be. Um, there was a church that found itself like picking sides. Didn't that sound like us? And Paul said, the gospel is what got you into this trouble. The gospel is what gave you this new life. And it is the gospel. It is the truth about who Jesus Christ is that is actually going to finish the work that God has already began in you. Chapter 1, verse 1, let's read it and uh, let's look at it. First of all, um, Paul, Paul wants them to, to know what kind of got them set is what's going to sustain them. And so he begins, in every one, he begins and ends every one of his letters with this particular phrase, and I know you and I, when we're writing a, a letter, um, we, at the very end of our letter, we usually write, back in my day, maybe it's different today, but actually we used to write, sincerely, Jim. And I don't know why I wrote that. I, I wasn't like sitting there going, how can I end this letter? You know, if there's one thing I am, it's sincere. I'll be sincerely, Jim, right? That's just how I saw letters written. So I'm just going to write that too, sincerely, Jim. How many of you have gotten a letter that it was from sincerely somebody? Have you ever got a sincerely? How many of you went, wow, sincerely, that changes everything. I didn't know this was sincerely coming from them as they ripped me in half. I thought, right, this is sincere. Yours truly, oh, well, if you're truly mine, well then. And we do that, don't we? We just kind of glance through these statements and we go, everybody says it. I don't, I don't know how much they really mean it. But the Apostle Paul begins and ends every one of his letters with these two words that can almost, if we're not careful, can sound a little bit like a sincerely or yours truly. But they're more than that. And so the Apostle Paul says this, verse one, Paul, called by the will of God, it wasn't an accident, it was God's intent to be an apostle. Now, now there it has a small a. I don't even have to be capitalized or not. Literally, the word just means someone who is sent. That's why you gotta be called. You don't self-appoint. And by the way, to be an apostle doesn't mean that you have some amazing title and a really great parking spot. 
To be an apostle actually means that you've been called by God to be his ambassador, to send a message on his behalf. And the apostle Paul understands this, and he has accepted it. Sure, the word apostle can carry a certain amount of weight, but far more responsibility. An apostle of Christ Jesus. And our brother Sosthenes, he doesn't write this letter by himself. He didn't do life by himself. To the church of God. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Um, what, what church do you go to? Whose church is that? Whose church is that? They're usually trying to figure out who your pastor is, right? Whose church is that? It's God's church. That's who it is. <laughs> Whose church is that? That Sunnybrook church? It's God's church. Is that Jim's church? It's God's church. I remember when I was a professor, we, were, we have chapel twice a week, and uh, we would always try to figure out who was preaching, because, you know, if whoever's preaching might determine whether or not we go to chapel back before we had mandatory chapel attendance, right? Who's preaching? Matt's preaching? Oh, yeah, I'll go. Who's preaching? I won't say. But, yeah, I don't know. I think I have some homework I need to do. It happens even in Bible college. I'll never forget when someone made a comment and they just said, you want to know who's preaching in chapel? One professor used to always say, God is preaching in chapel. That's who's preaching. God is. It's kind of how Paul is here. Like if you ever want to know, like those churches we prayed for, I, I know we mentioned some of those pastors by name, but it's not their church, it's God's church. That's why I want us to always be like aware, almost like somewhat reverent, not of an individual, but of the people that they represent. These people represent God. This, whose church is this? Who founded this church? Well, I don't know who founded it. I do know God's the one it's been founded upon. Whose church is it? It's God's. To the church of God that, look, look at how it is, that happens to be, let me add a word there, that, that just, it finds itself in, it's the church of God that exists in Corinth. And then it describes them again to this church. Literally, it means the called out ones. Paul was called out. In the church, people are called out from their sin, from their brokenness to be something different. It says, describes them in another phrase here, to those sanctified. That's what the church is. To those who've been sanctified. Now, for some of you, you might go, that's a deep word and I'm not in college, so I don't know if I can handle deep words. No, we can handle deep words. The word sanctified is just a word that goes back to that concept of being holy. Holy is a word that we usually use negatively. Holy roller, holier than thou. Righteous, self-righteous, overly righteous. But no, the church are this group of broken people who because of their, their trust, their allegiance, their appeal to Jesus Christ, things are radically different. And they are those who are sanctified, being declared holy, how does God see you? God sees you just like he sees Jesus. Well, you know, but, but he can see through that, right? Well, listen, he's God. Sure, he can see through it. And in his kindness and in his mercy and in his goodness, he chooses to see that. Yeah. Is that not amazing? We don't deceive God. We don't confuse him with our holiness. We can't impress him by our goodness. None of that is possible. He sees all through that, and yet he chooses in his kindness and for his own favor, God chooses to look at us as holy, as sanctified, as set apart. It says we are called to be saints. <laughs> called to be saints. 
literally, nothing against those that go through a much more rigorous process of figuring out sainthood. There is a denomination within Christianity that goes through a series of steps to try to separate those who are saints with those who are saints. Those who have um, performed certain amounts of miracles. Those who have kind of had this steady, um, this, this, this steady uh, acknowledgement of their greatness. N- nothing necessarily against that. I have some concerns because the Bible seems to make it more of a level playing field. And not because it just really wants to appeal to this egalitarian position that we're all the same. No, but in Christ, um, we actually are. Then when it comes to what Jesus Christ has done, it's not that a few of us reach the level of sainthood. It's that because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished, we all can achieve that. No matter where you've come from, even if you were to go back and take a look at Paul's first driver's license, you'd notice that his name was different. He wasn't always called Paul. Like he had another identity. He had a name and a life before that. And before that, if you look on the first one, right, it's got a hole in it because you always punch those out when you get a new driver's license. If you look at it, it actually says Saul. What's that about? That's actually about the fact that there was a man named Saul, but then he was called by God to be a saint, and he is now holy. And that holiness is nothing he has accomplished. It is a gift from God. And they are called to be saints. So are you holy? What is the answer? Are you a saint? What is the answer? Yes, this is who we are. This is the church of God. Together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And then he says it. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. Not sincerely yours, not yours truly. Grace and peace to you. Now the problem is those two words carry such weight with them. Grace, we usually describe it as this unmerited favor, as this kindness that God just gives out. But it, it, it's, 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 it's so much more than that, especially when you're wanting to use it in a letter, especially when you're wanting someone to experience this. It, it fundamentally is um, like the character of God. That God is, in fact, a gracious God. The Bible tries to say this over and over and over again. This is not like one aspect of who he is. Like, this is when you cut him, this is what he bleeds, literally. Grace. Like, this is his posture. This is his position. There is a generosity about it, a kindness about it, a gentleness about it. And amazingly enough, he never dials back his holiness to do it. He never has to dial back his righteousness to do it. He is fully grace and he is fully righteous. He never dials back his truth. He never has to put his head in the sand about us. He remains full of grace. Is this what you think of God? What's God like? He is just so, he's so gracious. It's something we usually just say about old people. They're just gracious. Either that or cranky. They're just gracious. And God is gracious. And and Paul says, like, I hope you experience this gift. I hope you remember this gift. I was baptized in November of 1981 I'm not saying that's the first time I ever came in contact with God's grace, but sometimes it's good to go back and to think about those moments in your life where you were just keenly aware of God's grace. And one of the things that you need to do, next step, 
is just remember that that was true every day. There was never a day you needed God's grace more or less. And by the way, whether you needed it more or less, he had it for you every day. Broken, it's there for you. Before you come to him, it's already waiting for you. You've come to him and you've had some serious, serious just breakage in your life. What is needed to get you on the right track? A good hell and brimstone, well, maybe, but really, it's all about grace. Paul says grace to you and peace. Grace and peace. You might think those go hand in hand, and and in fact, they do, because when we have experienced this generosity, this prodigal, which just means it's extravagant, more than a prodigal son, we have a prodigal God. Prodigal doesn't mean evil. It means this generous extravagance. That's the way God is. And and when, when, when you're in favor with God, and not everybody is, but when you're in favor with God because of what Jesus Christ has done, then may you have peace. That's something that's sorely lacking from our culture today. If there's one thing I can assume when someone walks into my office or we just meet at Aspen Coffee, I guarantee you it's this. They are full of anxious thoughts. I think it was last year I read a report that said roughly 25% of incoming freshmen to university are on some kind of medication to deal with depression and anxiety. Man, there's just so many concerns that are out there. Maybe, um, maybe it was different back then. I doubt it. And so Paul offers this. Do you see why this has to be so much more than just sincerely Jim? Grace to you in peace. That's not good luck because he actually ties it to his source. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the, our Lord Jesus Christ. Like, may you experience his grace, his kindness, his generosity, his love, his unmerited favor. May you experience that. May you remember that. May you live in that. May you drown in that. And that from that, may you experience a peace. May you somehow be able to to get up in the morning, not because everything is great. I gotta, I gotta meet with my boss on Tuesday. I know that's not going to go well. And I don't even know if I wanna come home Monday because I know how it goes every time I come home. And we rehearse this and the tension inside the house, it's better for me to be at work and I don't even like work. What do you mean peace? I have no peace. And Paul says to people that are probably struggling just like we're struggling, May the grace of God and may the peace that comes from God be on you. The, the, the Jewish community loves this word, you know, this shalom. And it's not just peace, bro, brah. It's not that. It's not that kind of peace, actually. It's a kind of peace that says, may like all the way down through you, which means I don't need you to ignore or deny your marital problems or the problems that your kids are causing you or the deadline that you have this week. Like I, you, don't need to, you don't need to ignore that. You don't need to pretend that isn't real. May the God of peace give you peace in the midst of all of that. Like, do you know what that peace is? You understand that level of peace? Paul wishes it upon this group of people who for many ways are going to be acting improperly because they're freaked out. And he knows the answer is peace. Basically what Paul now realizes is that he was fighting against God his whole life and didn't even know it. 
He was opposing Jesus Christ. He was fighting against God's plan and God's, and he didn't even know it. Like I thought I was doing the right thing and I was doing the wrong thing every step of the way, but now, now I'm at peace with God and I know I'm at peace with God because he raised Jesus from the dead. So I know that I'm at peace with God. Which by the way, doesn't mean that you don't have to see your boss on Tuesday. Or kind of just put on your big boy or big girl pants and go home Monday night and figure it out. Doesn't mean your kids are going to be magically wonderful. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means in the midst of all of those things, the God of peace be with you. We don't, we don't talk like that. We don't live like that. We, we know how to live in our anxiety. We know how to live in our concern. We don't know how to live in our peace. And so we try to figure out another way that we can deal with it to numb our minds or our emotions or just check out, run away. And Paul says, may you reflect on and experience the fact that you're at peace. I, I know even right now some of you are going, hey, listen, dude, I know, I know you say that, but... And I'm telling you, there is no but that is greater than the peace that only God can give. I assure you. And then he continues. He's going to wrap this entire section around something that is really important, and that is this. That he didn't end up being called by God by accident, but it was a purpose that was set. That he didn't end up being part of this uh, band of, of, of followers of Jesus Christ by accident, but God had it set and that God was doing something. That he didn't just stumble into Corinth, but that God had a plan. And that God's plan continued after he left and that God's plan is going to continue even after he's gone. What he's wanting them to understand is that none of this is by accident, but everything is in accordance with God's plan and God's purpose and God's gonna see it through to the end. That God, in fact, himself is faithful to you. And the church needs to hear that today and back then. That what God has called you from, what God is changing you out of, what God is pulling you from, he is going to see you through to the end of that. He's going to help you experience the fullness that he wants you to have in your life. By the way, his, not, not some kind of a, a cheap version that, that anybody, even a good preacher, can try to sell you. I'm talking God's peace, God's grace full upon your life. And Paul's going to make very, very clear that they remember God's the one that started this, and he's going to see it through to the end. Look, beginning in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you. He's into that prayer section. Because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ, meaning that's the gospel, the testimony about Jesus, who he was and what he did. And notice what that gospel did. That gospel which was confirmed among you. The gospel finds its confirmation in us, this is something that we don't do enough talking about. We, we really need to spend time recognizing that when we dare, you and I dare, to move out of our brokenness and out of our sinfulness and out of our selfishness and out of our pride and out of our toxicity of sin, that what happens there is not just a psychological understanding or a sociological working, it is actually a divine act. And it is a confirmation that the gospel is true. 
I love saying it. Sometimes when someone is um, getting baptized, I love to say, hey, thank you for preaching to me this morning. Or when someone is in my office, or we're just having a conversation, and they begin to just share just how, how, how much they have recognized what is wrong in their life and how they want to give their life to Jesus Christ. And, and, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not talking about the first time. I'm talking about for like the 50th time, that continual act of repentance. I love to say, hey, thank you so much for confirming yet once again the gospel that exists in you. See, this is what broken people do. Broken people, when they recognize the goodness of Jesus Christ, when, when they recognize what Jesus Christ has done, and then they respond with repentance, and they respond with this life that is devoted and dedicated, obedience to God for God's glory. What that is, that is a confirmation of the gospel. And Paul says, I went there, and I knew I wouldn't get everybody, because that's the way the gospel is. But for those of you who did, thank you. I thank God for you, for confirming he doesn't put it in this term, but this is how I always say it. Thank you for reminding me, helping me to believe I'm not crazy. How do you know this? Look how it continues. Because you're not lacking, so that you are not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, this Lord Jesus Christ will be the one who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless on that day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? See how Paul isn't just wishful thinking his way through this? He isn't just putting his faith in people. Man, I know those people in Stillwater and they are just so determined. They're that, that good old folk that pull themselves up. No, we're not. We're messed up, broken people. And you leave us alone without the Holy Spirit and we will exploit and hurt one another. We will walk out of our marriage. We will not actually go, we will not be held to any contract we would ever sign. And if I think I can get a buck from you, I will sue you. But the Holy Spirit came and everything's different. Everything's radically different. And Paul is pointing to God. Paul is pointing to Jesus Look at what he says, number verse nine. For God is faithful, and he is the one by whom you were called into fellowship with the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul has seized the faithfulness of God in the midst of their brokenness. Now, by the way, he's about to talk about some problems that they've had. He's not afraid to deal with it. He just says, before we deal with your problems and your struggles and your difficulties, can we put it in its rightful context? I do, I get a number, and I'm not the only one on, on ministry staff here. We just get a number of people who call and just want to talk about how broken they are. And I'm not, I'm not afraid to talk about it. But I love reminding them, each, each of them, like God knew you'd be here. And you were in a place much like this before you ever found Jesus in the first place. And God is by no means surprised. Let us remember like God's grace and God's kindness. Let us remember that God is faithful. Let us remember that he is the one that called you to this place and he is the one that will see it through to the end. He is the one that will give you that strength. And maybe that reminder is one more thing that we need on a constant basis because I just can't do it by my own strength. And even if I could somehow make it look like I could or deceive myself into thinking that I could, by definition, that's not God's grace or his peace, is it? It can only be by him and from him and for him. 
And then we get kind of what Paul's getting to. Paul talks about this grace and the peace that he wants them to experience. He points to the fact that God is faithful. And now he says, and, and now let's talk about some problems that I'm seeing and some problems that I'm hearing. And now let's just get down to some, some real things that you guys need to be aware of. And he begins in verse 10. As he is appealing to them, I want you to be of the same mind and I want you to be of the same judgment. I want us to be united. I want us to be together. Look at verse 10. So I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Now, now by the way, this isn't saying that Paul, I, I just want all of you to vote the same way. I want all of you to dress the same way. I want all of you to root for the same team. Well, I think he knows you're not all going to become Miami fans with me, even though maybe you should. No, I don't even care if you do. He's not talking about that kind of agreement. I mean, if you read the rest of his letters, he, he seems to be very open with so much diversity that exists. But yet, he's pointing to something here, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. You all, we can't ever trust Chloe and her people. Chloe's people, look at this. So obviously, Chloe's people get to Ephesus, and they say, Paul, let me tell you what's going on. And Paul says, well, we got to deal with this. So they've heard from Chloe's people about this division. In verse 12, what I mean to say is this. Some of you are going in terms of this quarreling. I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is another name for Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then Paul gets into this, okay, I feel kind of guilty because I can't remember somebody else. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Don't you love that? Just, I, I gotta be honest with you. And Stephanus' household. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. I, I didn't, I'm not here to try to get you to be on my team. I'm here because I've been called to be on someone else's team, and his name is Jesus. And we're not playing well as a team. And I'm now going to appeal to you to be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. It, it reminded me of a sign that I, I see no matter where I go, no matter where I go, I see this sign that tells me what two universities are popular in the area. Have you seen this? House divided. And on the one half, you got, you know, an OSU grad. And on the other, can you believe this? Someone, OSU grad, married to an OU grad. Oh, what is going on? And now their house is torn asunder, right? So this is what you see. Now, now here's what's interesting. Like, that particular sign, right, we all know it, it's a joke. Like, it's a game, isn't it? Like, it's, it's going, ha, 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 she graduated from OU and I graduated from OSU. Isn't that kind of funny? Like, we really don't root for each other. House divided, get it? It's a joke. Now, what's the joke? Here's the joke. That marriage is so much more important than what, what college we went to. Isn't, I'm, I'm assuming I'm getting those signs right. They really don't mean a house divided and I should call them, Right? I don't stop every car. Oh, I heard you guys are in trouble. I saw the license plate. Um, I'm so sorry you married somebody that went to, you know. Anyway, so you've got this house divided, but it's a joke. 
Don't you get it? It's marriage. Marriage is so much more important. You don't, you don't throw away a marriage. You don't have to divide it. It's, it's not about like where we went to college, which really doesn't matter that much. I promise you, I know you're looking at me going, oh, but it really doesn't matter that much in comparison to marriage. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is looking at them and going, torn? Literally, the, the, the phrase that be united can actually be used to describe like mending something that was once together that is now broken. I want you to be united. I want you to, to, to bring it back together. It's the same word that is actually used when the disciples were working with their fish or trying to catch their fish with the nets or working with their nets and the nets would tear. They would, they would take them and they would let them dry out a little bit. Okay, and then you know what they would do? They would unite them, the same Greek word. They would, make them, they would make them work because broken nets don't work. And so we need to be united to make them work. That's what Paul's getting at here. Which, which is interesting. My, my, my wife and I have always wrestled with this. Is that, you know, you know, since we're married, shouldn't it be easy? Like since we love each other, and we really do, we've kind of had this crazy love for each other since we were both so young. Like shouldn't it be easy? No. Like we're in a relationship together, right? And so... Why shouldn't, shouldn't this be easy? Shouldn't this be easier than it is? And what's the answer? No. And what Paul is pointing out at here is like, guys, there should be no divisions among you. There should be no quarreling among you. There should be no, I follow this and you follow that. And I, I just really think Paul's the best. And then you've got that one group of people that seem to be insinuating at some level. I don't know if they're sincere or not. We follow Jesus. There's always a group of people that are still church. You know what I mean? We're the ones that never change. We're the ones that always are. We're the ones that really get it. Always that group. And what's happening? What's happening is Paul is going, yeah, but we shouldn't act like that. Like that fundamentally undercuts what grace is all about and what peace is all about. Like there's no room for that in here. Like, what do you mean house divided? Tell me this is a joke because I cannot think of any reason that would divide two people who have been united by the grace and the peace of God. Can I just say, as I close, I look at our culture and I just see so many divisions, male and female. I see, I see different ethnic groups vying for posturing and different you know, exploitation and manipulation. I just see all this red and blue state. And I, and I wish I could say to you, and he, but here's the beauty. Like it stops at the door of the church. Like we never allow any of that in, on, in here. Well, it's on our Twitter page, but we never allow any of that in here. <laughs> Can you imagine what it would be like I mean, how many of you are aware that, the, that there, our culture, like our city, like our state, like our country, is like incredibly divided, and it's not a joke? Anybody else sensing it? Can you imagine what it would be like if you and I were to say, yeah, like, we don't have this red and blue game here, because we appeal to something much greater, his name is Jesus. And we fought for that. And, you know, we treat everybody like they are children of God. That's what we do here. Like racism is not allowed in here. Sexism is not allowed in here. See, we're united about this because we're united about God. And, and, and sure, we can have some disagreements, but come on. Like, 
Like, let's stop joking around about that. Like, let's start taking what is holding us together, and that is the grace of God and the peace of God. Let's start taking that more seriously. Like, maybe it's time that we begin to care a little less about things that don't matter as much and care about Jesus a little more, don't you think? And allow certain walls to come down and allow even a certain amount of disagreement to exist so that you and I, with one voice and with one intention and one mission, make a difference in the world around us. You do know Jesus prayed that we would be one so that the world might know that God sent him and that he sent us. And, and I, I really do. I just pray that when the world looks at us, those of us who are the church of God, who are holy, they look at us, they say, well, there's one thing about them. I mean, they, I'm sure they have disagreements, but, but they're one. And why? Because that's what Jesus makes us. Now, I don't know what that is actually going to look like in your life. We, we may need to have a lot of conversations around the side. I'm just telling you, there is nothing of greater value and greater importance. Nothing than you and I remembering who God is and what God has done, and you and I deciding for that reason, and that's really the only reason we would ever need, to genuinely be together. Let's pray. God, thank you just for us being together, for the opportunity that we are going to have to be united. God, thank you for your grace and for your peace, for your plan and for your purpose, and I pray that that we would then take all of our very important and very, um, in our minds, my mind, very critical ideas about politics and economics and social, sociological issues and cultural problems, and may we see them through the lens of the gospel. And may we work hard, God, at our marriages and in our families and in our community to be one. And may we do that not by ignoring differences, but by recognizing just how great what holds us together truly is, because his name is Jesus. And in his name we trust and pray. Amen. If you want to continue this faith conversation, we would love to continue it with you. I, I really do hope and pray that you take that last challenge and you begin to ask, how can you, not just in this room, but in other places, Find ways to be united around Jesus and his mission. I'm not saying the things that you're wrestling with aren't important. I'd love for you to try to explain to me how they're more important than Jesus. Love you guys. God bless, and we will see you Wednesday night.